0: Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance, not just for themselves, but for the common good. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today, we're at episode number 124, and I'm calling it Executive Cognition. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Barry Borgerson, who's the author of The Two Cells Revolution, his 2019 book, Barry is an executive coach who has written extensively on cognition at the executive level. We discuss his latest book and his approach to saving the world. And I'm now joined by Barry Borgerson. How are you doing today, Barry?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: In a minute, I want to talk about your 2019 book, The Two Cells Revolution. But first, let's get a little context of how you got into this area. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch?
1: Sure. I, I I was in a leadership position in a couple of different areas, and I took over a business, and this business was failing. So I went in there to save to save the business. And I had a vision for where to go. And I was pretty sure it would it would work. It was in the it was it was in the financial sector and it was really selling check processing equipment, but it was electrical mechanical. I wanted to get us into the imaging business. And a couple of things happened when I took over this business that was obviously failing and they knew they were failing. First of all, there was really good people, really smart, knowledgeable people, but they had some behaviors. And so we had to do some behavior change. And I knew something about that at the time. So I was doing fairly well on that. But the culture, it was a failing culture. And I would explain to them where we should go and they would acknowledge it. Then they keep doing the same thing. So then I'd explain it a slightly different way. They would acknowledge it. They keep doing the same thing, and so they were essentially watching themselves fail, and they couldn't do anything about it. Now, I was pretty sure they weren't just deliberately trying to sabotage my efforts, because they were agreeing with me. They just they just couldn't change. So then I started saying, "Okay, well, first thing I did is I changed the culture the hard way. I just brute forced it. I just applied relentless." pressure day after day after day until i finally changed the culture but i knew then there had to be a better way to do it It just it just this doesn't make any sense that that they're on a failing path they know they're failing and they can't seem to change they're just going to watch themselves fail and so i started studying the automatic part of the mind some more really you know you see my library but i had a huge library at one time it's pretty big now and i looked at it from a lot of perspectives I, you know, I looked at the mind in, you know, sociology, anthropology, religion, psychology, you know, history. And, and as I started doing that, I started creating a model of the automatic mode of the human mind. So then I started to get where I could be more, you know, automatic behaviors. I could change people's behaviors. Automatic, what I call auto-context, automatic contextualizing frameworks. Those things that underpin cultures, problem-solving worldviews, you know. Uh, paradigms, if you like, attitudes, self-images, values, those things that we just have in there that we just can't change. And I started modeling those, and I was, became convinced that I had insights that nobody else had, because I'd done a lot of reading, and that the world needed it. And it would be so much help, helpful to the world if I could get it out there. So I wanted to keep developing it, so I retired early from a lucrative executive career to decide to, produce, you know, pursue this. And it took a bit longer than I thought. <laughs> well, what's happened now is the world has caught up with my concepts, the environment. And, and it's, it's caught up with it in the way that the digital age now is creating changes so rapidly. That the need for culture change is coming quicker and quicker and quicker. And business leaders don't know how to do that methodically enough to, to accommodate. So companies are failing. And, you know, probably the best insight into that is is uh, is, is a book by Klaus Schwab, head, head of the, you know, of, of the Davos uh, uh, conferences. It was. And, uh, and he points out, you know, he wrote a book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. And in that book, he... Points all the technologies that are coming, but then he points out several things in many ways how leaders aren't capable right now of managing some of the. He doesn't put it quite that way, but he names them the automatic part of, of you know the leadership capabilities, and and so and then of course in the political arena the same part of the mind this automatic realities. Creating, maintaining part of the mind is getting manipulated now in the political mechanism, you know, political world in the United States, but in the West and a lot of places, where our two and a half century experiment in self-governance is uh, in jeopardy of coming to an end, and people think they're making choices, but they're not. I mean, you know, things. So, so we get the get the ability to create what I model as cert- certainty illusions or certainty delusions. In other words, certainties that don't correspond with the world.
0: Yeah, and, so let me let me stop you there just for yeah. a minute. Um, yes. I, I wanted to have you on the show, definitely, because you've got some interesting ideas. And you have a, a two or three books. Uh, the one we're going to talk a little bit about today and, and hopefully get in a little depth there is the Two Selfs Revolution. Yes. That's uh, two, the number two selves, no, yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. uh from 2019. Uh, so the basic th- thesis there is that we have two selves within us. Uh, there's right. the reasoning self yes. and there's the automatic self. Now, when we talk about the automatic self, that's not the autonomic nervous system or no. any sort of... Um, underlying mechanisms of the body this is the reasoning part but it's an automatic reasoning part I think um, yes. so tell us a little bit give us some examples of, of how these two selves play out in our everyday sort of lives sure uh,
1: there, there's when I look at the automatic part I look at four different aspects four different types of automatic activities you know our skills so for instance you know we learn how to ride a bike you can't explain how you ride a bike you, you 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 do it through trial and error you do it so that's a lot about it. it's we, it's what we call skills then there's intuition you know this in, this uh you know you know some people call it gut it's it's the the intuition part and that that uh that's a separate part the automatic behaviors come up in business all the time people don't do things they need to do. We call it procrastination, but you know they won't they won't work on projects they think are uncomfortable if they feel are uncomfortable. they won't work they won't go to uh, work with very aggressive people because it's too uncomfortable for them. In management, they won't do performance reviews. So that's how it comes out in business. In uh, our daily lives, people, People are. I'll give you a real good example that's happening right now. People are falling for what I would I model as simplistic solutions, but feel good solutions. It happens all the time, and that's what they want. I mean, they're busy. The information is flowing at them at a rapid rate. They they're overwhelmed with information. They know they're not getting everything done or doing things right. They know they're failing in some aspects of their life. So they want. Simple solutions, feel-good solutions, something that will make them feel, motivation. they love motivation. And, and the problem is that's not solving their problems. People are, people are convinced that certain solutions will work. So, so it comes out in our, in our lives that a worldview, for instance, one of, the, one of the incarnations of this automatic contextualizing framework is a problem-solving worldview. And, and those, those get constructed all the time. And you know, there, there's a, there was a set of books that came out, best practices books. Everyone's familiar with these best practices books. And uh, you know, it's Search of, Search of Excellence, Built to Last, uh, Good to Great. And those were feel-good books. They read. Really, I mean, they made people feel really good. They were simple to understand. They were really good. But a, a guy named Phil Rosenzweig wrote a, wrote a book totally destroying them, saying that they were, you know, he called them delusions. And, but, it's, but it's what we do. We take things that feel good and we, and we run with them. And the nice thing about that, and this thing proved it, those kind of books, simplistic solutions, seduction traps, have a very good part of the business model because you can keep selling different versions of it over and over again, because they don't solve the problem. <laughs> so those are some examples of, you know, real live things that are going on right now.
0: Yeah, certainly um, business leaders uh, often settle for simplistic solutions. <laughs> I know of cases where uh, employees have complained that their, that their boss has gone off for the weekend and read another book and he brings back uh, some new ideas. and you know, tries to implement them immediately without uh, fully understanding the ram- right. <laughs> um, so, granted, uh, we're in a world where simplistic solutions are attractive. Uh, but give us a little sense of how your ideas relate to some of the standard um, uh, ways of treating things from, let's say, sociology and, and psychology, and some of your, your standard fields. Uh, the, which people have studied, you know, in their in their university training, but I think what what you're doing is cutting across many of these fields, um, and and sort of a polymath kind of a way uh, yes. to to bring it all together. But reflect, if you would, for a moment on on the standard ways to address these things and why those are inadequate.
1: Well, uh, I'll I'll tell you why why they're, why they're inadequate they don't explicitly recognize an automatic part of the human mind and model it. They don't. Now, psychology, interesting, psychology does understand the automatic part, you know, the the unconscious, the subconscious, they talk about that. But here's the thing, if two-self's theory had been around, and we understood we had a thinking self and an automatic self, hundred years ago, the psychology profession would not have taken a 50-year detour into hard behaviorism. And so they took the position, you have to have hard science. So they were actually into the auto self, but they ignored the automatic self. They ignored the thinking self, thinking abilities, and it just set, it set psychology back, psychotherapy back for a half a century. And now they have new techniques, new, been Recovered 50, well, more than 50 years now, you know, where they call it cognitive behavior. So the two selves again, but they, they still don't model. They, they model the behavior part. I claim almost nobody has a good model of the contextualizing framework. The best one out there, I think, the structure of scientific revolution by Thomas Kuhn written 60 years ago. But it was very specific. It was aimed at what he called science paradigms. And what happens when you make not, you know, he calls normal science and revolutionary science. So what happens when you're making incremental progress and then you can't make it anymore? Things aren't working. You're getting too many things that aren't fitting. And then you make this big transition, which he calls revolutionary science, a paradigm shift, he called it, right? Well, I've generalized that. To not just be in science, but to be in business problem solving, political problem solving. To be not not just problem solving, but cultures, attitudes, values, and so it's a generalized model of that part of the mind. He never placed it in the part of the mind. He just saw it correctly, very good insight as something that was strange going on that he that he was able to describe as paradigms. So there's relating it to some other activities that that. That are out there.
0: So I think you're placing this in the context of the two selves theory, um, where you're saying that normal science is not really addressing uh, some of these issues. So give us a little thumbnail sketch of two selves theory and how does it work? What are its basic propositions uh, that, that allow us to predict or to uh, analyze? a situation and come to a solution that works better than what we're doing right now.
1: Okay. Uh, the the, uh, the two selves again are the, the, the thinking self and the auto self, automatic self. I just model it as a thinking self and an auto, auto self for the two selves. And sometimes they do work cooperatively. And you know, for instance, if we build a culture in a business, here, here's how it works. Auto context, the contextualizing part of the auto self, the ones that creates our, 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 our context, create cultures in a business. Okay. And how does that work? The way you create an auto context is you do it through repetition and usually a lot of feelings. So you do something over and over and over again. Now, in business, if you get on you get a strategy, you get a mission, and you go out and it's successful that feels good. You try it again the next week, the next month, the next day, you get a success. It's solving a problem. It feels good. You do it again, get a success. It feels good. Then pretty soon that migrates from something you're thinking about to something you believe that you're certain about. You don't notice that process going on. You can't look inside and see that it's there. So how this works is to understand that that process exists. People don't understand that very well that process exists okay so what are the implications for business that that process exists well we live in we live in a world now prior previous it's always existed of course it's part of human nature why didn't we have to worry about it before well changes came pretty slowly and so you could make the changes often intergenerationally in other words the environment's changing it's changing so you' you're, you're culture, your beliefs about what's really true, no longer align, the next generation of management comes in, they don't have that same cultural element. It's there For so them, it's all thinking stuff. It's not in that automatic part, and they change it. Well, now what's happening is the change the environment, mainly driven by digital, but a lot of other things built up or enhanced by digital technologies, are changing so rapidly that one now has to make, know how to make culture changes, not only multiple times in a career, but often once a year, you know, I mean, it's frequent. So, so how do you do that? Well, you have to get some way to find out what are in those auto contexts. And there's some techniques for that. You can't ask somebody what, you know, tell them, okay, you've got these auto contexts, you've got these cultural elements, what's in them. They frequently don't know. You have to ask a lot of whys. Why do you do it this way? Why is it that way? And, let, and force them to answer it. And, and so you expose them. It goes back now to Thomas Kuhn again. He talked about the need for a new scientific you know, theory was you get an accumulation of anomalies. Anomalies is what he called them, where the old theory doesn't, it doesn't fit. You got something that's not working. Then you get another one. Then you get another one. Now you have to go back and you have to change your basic assumptions. But those assumptions are in another part of the mind. <laughs> they're in they're in that automatic, and you can't change them. You just can't change them. So changing is difficult. So what you do is you have ways to expose them, then you have to go through a process. And you don't change, you don't change automatic behaviors, and you don't change these contextualizing frameworks by talking about it. You always have to apply feelings. So you have to, because change, that kind of change, transformational change, or in Kuhn's terms, revolutionary change, is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, one, because just that kind of change, that rewriting is uncomfortable. And in the case of cultural elements or problem-solving worldviews or paradigms, there's no need to change, because you're absolutely certain you're right. (laughs) And so you resist it. That's why in, in the science thing, when you get a new science, when you get a new science paradigm in Kuhn's terms, worldview and more generally, the old guard usually resist it. And then the new generation drives it forward. It takes a long time. In business, culture change, people who've done it a long time, they resist it. Other people have to take over. So what you need, first of all, is to understand that you've got this automatic part. Explicitly understand it. And it's, it's elusive and illusive. Okay? And by that, I mean, it's, it's elusive, elusive with an E because you can't see it. You, you, you can't say, okay, I've got this lot of context. Let me see. Let me look in there and tell you what's in there. You, you can't. When you get a new, one, a new one installed, constructed, I'd say, you don't notice the process. You can notice the effects later. And it's elusive in that it fools us. It yeah. deceives us we think we're totally right when we can be dead wrong.
0: So I think what you're saying is we're all sort of locked in our own cognitive prisons. Yes. Uh, which is based on our previous uh, learnings and yes. uh, the way we've internalized them into our behaviors and our processes. Um, I know I know you're a coach and uh, yes. you, you focus on executives, I think. Um, yes. So, it seems to me that two selves theory is really a way to um, address uh, the cognitive in, inabilities, I guess, of executives, and to um, move them in a little bit different path over time um, to to realize the prison that they're in, for one thing, and yes. to find a way out. So two self theory I think applies at the individual level to start with uh, but after that it may it may go to organizational levels. Uh, right. re- reflect on that a bit if you would.
1: Sure. well at the individual level that's, I mean changing changing behaviors, I call it the counteracting principle. okay so you're looking for principles we can apply. It's a counteracting principle. Change is uncomfortable. That's why self-help almost never works. That's another perfect example of motivation. People get it, it feels good, I got it. I got it now. I know I know what to, I know what to do and yet it doesn't happen. Well the change is uncomfortable. And if you if you encounter discomfort long enough, you quit normally. That's why even though they have some maybe, maybe some techniques that might work, it doesn't doesn't work very well. So the counteracting principle if you create feelings, to counteract the discomfort of change. And you don't let the client off the hook. So how do you get the anchors in the ground? The way I do it, I have them create grand goals. Now, so what are the biggest goals you want to achieve? And they have to have measurable or verifiable and a date. So we we we'll, we'll both know whether they achieved it. And I usually try to get them to do, to declare a grand goal or grand goals. That are beyond what they think they could currently achieve. So I mean it's going to be transformational. What would you like to achieve if you didn't have these barriers that you feel? And then I get them to then I get them to declare intentions for behaviors. okay what behaviors do you have to change to achieve those grand goals? And typically'll we'll, since by the way our self-image sits in an auto context, our soft image is almost always wrong, so we'll do a 360, a multi-rater feedback. And as you might expect, I don't know if you've ever done these. You might expect the soft image is usually way, way, way off what the rest of them. The 360 being the boss, peers, subordinates, and maybe another group. And so, so they see what other people notice about their behaviors that are conducive to. So then they'll look at those and they'll say, okay, to achieve these grand goals. I think I want to work on this behavior, this behavior, and this behavior. Okay. What happens when they go to enact a new behavior? They don't do it the first time because it's if it, you know it's uncomfortable. If it's either they have to do something they haven't been doing, uncomfortable, or they have to stop doing something that they're used to doing, uncomfortable. And so I make it, I I and there's again where you the counteracting principle, you know, fight fire with fire, if you like. I make it uncomfortable not to do it and then very pleasurable when they do make the change. That's why my behavior change coaching engagements normally last a year. Because although I get immediate results, I mean, people can notice they're getting better in weeks. They see the change. If I go away, they snap right back. So when I stay with them for a year, keep applying those feelings, keep getting them to do it, keep getting them to log how they're doing it, feel good about it, feel good about failing it. They, they stay, they're permanently rewired. I mean, they change. They're now, they're now behaving automatically. Their automatic part of them is now behaving consistent with their intentions and their goals. So that's, that's, uh, that's how they do it. On the auto-context part, you typically get a lot of people together and you start trying to reveal Get people to challenge, get people to bring in new innovations, and people reject them. Force an executive to get up and defend it, force them to defend it and rate them on how well they defend how well they defend it, and then select which ones look the best. Have executives come in and say, What is in the environment that everybody agrees is right? That we can all look for anomalies. Let's all challenge them. And and so they start. Uh, they start trying to challenge them. You'd be surprised when you start challenging them, you know, it starts saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, this one isn't, uh, this this one I'm not sure is is working right. So those are some of the, I mean, I'll give you specific examples of people i coach, not not attributing it to, to my, my name, but I can give you examples. So, you know, even examples where I've changed an auto context in the form of an attitude to change a behavior, you know? So that's an indirect way. Sometimes I change the behaviors directly. Sometimes you can change an attitude. By the way, that would work really well for in the prison system too, to get the recidivism rate down, the reoffense rate down. If we did these things in prisons, we could dramatically reduce the number of reoffenses. Not just changing the behaviors, but changing the attitudes, reconstructing them.
0: Yeah. So I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing this uh, right, is that uh, it takes a while for our emotional self to catch up with the, the, you know, to feel good about the new behaviors in a sense. Yes. Uh, So we have to, let's say, ingrain them in our
1: automatic
0: automatic way of doing things over time in order to uh, sort of cement them in place, you could say, uh, so that we continue to do that even when our coach is not there.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. You want, it's really a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's called transformation coaching, right? You're transforming the person. What, what Kuhn would have called revolutionary change. You know, it's not normal changes. You can't just tell somebody about it. I mean, it just has no impact on it. And, and, and they don't, you don't have direct access to that automatic. That's why I say it's elusive. You can't look inside you and see it. You can't just say, okay, you think I've got an auto context. So I'll see if I've got one. Well, I don't see it. Yeah, of course you don't see it. What, where it's illusive is people have deep, deep, deep beliefs that are demonst- demon- they're delusions, they're demonstrably false. And, and, and so, you know, but, but to them, they're real. So, you know, it brings back to another point. We actually have two forms of truth. And people, if people, you, know, you ask, what can, what can the theory do? It would help if people understood we have two distinct thing, mechanisms that we call true. We, we always intuitively feel that when we say something's true, it corresponds with something we're talking about. And that's often the case, you know? You know, is it, is it true that your name's Charles Chandler? Yes, that's true. It corresponds to who you are. Is it true you live in Texas? Yes, that's, that's true. You know, Is it true you're in DC now? That's true. So we think it corresponds. But there's another form of truth that's in that auto context part again, May or may not correspond to the outside world, or may or may not correspond to our success goals, our success needs, and and but those are the most powerful forms of truth, and they're, they 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 because it's just it's a belief it's 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 a certainty that's why I call them certainty it's a certainty illusion now I just I use certainty illusion generically to be. It's in that part of the mind and it may, a certain illusion may or may not correspond with facts in the world. And often they start out that way and the environment changes so fast, little by little by little, they don't correspond. A certainty delusion is when someone constructs a belief in you that verifiably is false from the beginning. And so, I mean, that's happening in politics right now, way too much to the detriment of our self-governing systems. <laughs>
0: Yeah, certainly uh, what you're saying, I think, is that there's the objective truth, which you can see, feel, touch, um, verify in some way in the real world. Then there's the subjective truth, which is your internal beliefs, which you may believe uh, wholeheartedly in one thing or another, which is not really true.
1: Right. And people don't know the difference. Yeah. That's, That's the key thing. If we start learning to get people to distinguish that. You know, and how do you I mean, I'm working with a client right now who's in a high level position, an executive, and he needs to learn to change cultures. So what I'm getting him to do is to get him to understand the concept of some of some of his beliefs, some of the beliefs of people who work for him, some of his beliefs in terms of their culture may not be true. And how do you go through the process? Well, the best way to change a culture is to experience it yourself. By the way, anytime I train a coach, you always have to be coached. So you have to know what it feels like internally to have your behaviors rewired. So I get this guy and I say, "Okay, pick something that you believe in, and then go suspend the beliefs." You know, but I have believe but verify, right? Sort of a takeoff on what Reagan did. You know, uh, and and, uh, uh, and and so what you do there is, is you start challenging, it. look for anomalies. Is are there, and. He's picked two that he believed. And to his astonishment, when he actually suspended it, okay, I'm gonna, I believe it, but I'm gonna verify it, you know. You know, and so he starts trying to verify it. Ooh, ow, ooh, ow. You know, it's a process because you believe it, you don't want this. And all of a sudden he finds out that belief is wrong. Picked another one. Oops, that belief is wrong too. <laughs> and so You go through that process, you say, how does it work? You guide someone through that process. Now they start understanding when they're trying to change cultural elements, that's what people are going through. And you have them look for anomalies that you have to have them start being open to looking for anomalies. And and so that's, that's part of a process you use. And this guy will become an ace culture changer.
0: Well, um, I think you know what we're trying to do today is just introduce your ideas to our audience. Uh, where can they find more about uh, what you're talking about, and what's the best way to connect with you?
1: My my website. Go to my website, and on the website over on the right side, the tab talks about media, and there's several articles that I've had published, and uh, they'll and you know they'll give you a good thing. So it's it's www of course, but to the number two dot com and if they go there and this way you know you can contact me there schedule a complimentary you know coaching session if you want to learn more about it but you can you can get articles there and and read them and they'll help you understand these things there's articles on how do you start from Kuhn and build it up there's articles on what i call the abilities mismatch the mismatch between our thinking abilities to create technologies and our automatic activities to accommodate the changes that they're that they're asking for. And they're all they're all there. There's one on business, one on the political governing economic systems. So they're all there, twocelts.com and, and my uh, you know, Barry at two selfs.com is how they can get me, that's also on the website.
0: Okay, great. Uh, thanks very much, Barry. Um, we'll have links to the, to those uh, websites on the show notes.
1: I look forward to it. I want to thank you so much for spending the time with me today and the interest in, in my, uh, my work on two cells theory. And the other thing, by the way, if sometime you want to do that, uh, I know you've got a, a keen interest in big history. Uh, I'd like to pursue that with you a little bit more, because I think this is a piece of big history we're going to go through now, uh, where we're making a transition similar to the science Enlightenment revolution that we had where we're going to make a major society-wide transformation.
0: I think you're right on those things, uh, definitely, that, uh, you know, we're at an inflection point and uh, we really need some new ideas and some new ways of thinking about these things. So thanks very much, uh, Barry, and uh, it's been great uh, talking with you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. For more ideas on managing capitalism for the common good, Pick up a copy of my 2017 book, Become Truly Great. Serve the common good through management by positive organizational effectiveness. And that's all for today. We're going to leave it there. Join us again next time when we'll again consider stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. That's all for now. So long.